all get tired once in a while, but that the world has, is beating people up. Like really, it doesn't seem fair. You try to be a good person. You try to pay your taxes. You try to raise kids that listen to you. You know, you try to save money and the prices go up and you're just done. Like you're, you're just done. And it's especially hard when it seems like nobody sees or even cares. I was watching even this week, there's a popular, um, he, what I would, he's, a, he's a psychologist, but he's, his name is Jordan Peterson. You probably heard of him and they're asking him about this group of guys that are called incels and it's a kind of a mockery of guys who sit behind a computer and don't think that girls ever like them and, you know, like they're always upset. And he, They're asking Jordan Peterson about these incels and he, he starts weeping and he says, you know, people everywhere, people everywhere these days, whether they're sitting behind a computer or just in families, they just are looking, they're looking for just somebody to give them an encouraging word. And I think somewhat people come to church for that. I just want an encourage. I want to hear. I want to hear from God. You know what? In a sense, I'm tired of the news. I'm tired of sports. Does God have anything to say to me this morning? I had somebody even say to me, "You know, I don't know if God has anything to say to me." He said, "You're a pastor. People like you. It's easy to believe in God when people like you, but try living in my shoes for a while. When I got to go to a job at a." mill or factory and nobody sees. My work doesn't seem like anybody cares. I just come home, go to sleep, get back up and do the same thing. And then people just, you know, a lot of times my wife and kids take my money. They don't care. You, Who are you, pastor? And you know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. I'll never understand the problems of another. I won't. It may be impossible for any of us really to understand what people go through on a day-to-day basis because everybody lives in their own room of isolation and quiet desperation, one writer said. But there is one who understands. There really is. There is one who has not only been there, but he's been there deeper and darker than you could ever imagine. Like ever imagine. There is one who has had a day like nobody's ever had a day. It was one day that made up for eternity. And his name is Jesus. And the day was the crucifixion. And I'd like you to open up to Matthew 27 because we're going to talk about that day. I don't really, I'll be honest with you, I don't, I don't really feel worthy of talking about this. I don't know if I can do it even justice. But I'm just going to read it, talk about it, and my objective is to get you to think about it. Just think about it. And especially if you are a person right now that has come in here and says, nobody understands me, nobody sees, nobody understands. If that's where you are, listen today. I mean it. Really listen to the Bible today. Sometimes it's frustrating. I think people come in because they want to be entertained. We read the Bible up here because I believe in the depth of my soul, if you let these words sink into you, it can change you. Like it really can. And it can help you live one more day. 
face one more trial, put up with one more insult. People are caving in so easy these days. Listen to a chapel, my son's football, the, the, uh, the chaplain said, you know, when, when, whenever you want to do something great, did you know Satan wants to attack you? And we, we live in a day and age where we just hope everything comes easy. Nothing comes easy. Don't give up. And especially if you think you're alone, listen today. I want to begin in Matthew 27 and begin in the middle of verse 31. Look at the middle of verse 31 says, Then, it's Matthew 27, 31, Then they led him away to crucify him. What does that mean? Well, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as we said last week, who made everything that you see. And they crucified him. And crucify means to hang on a cross naked. To suffer painfully, agonizingly, with your hands stretched out with nails in them and your feet with another nail for complete humiliation so the world can mock you. That's the point. That's what Rome wanted to do. Rome instituted crucifixion to gain complete submission to say, we dominate you. That's the point. And it's meant to make you be utterly humiliated. I just couldn't imagine hanging naked. Jesus did. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go verse through verse 32 through 66. And I just want to bring up three things to say that Jesus understands. And the first is this. We find in the story that Jesus endured utter humiliation. And by endured, the idea of endured is he willingly submitted to the crushing of the Father. He endured, he put up with, he stayed up there when he could have very easily ripped his arms off the cross and got angry. And if he did, none of us would have a chance for salvation. What is, what is shocking to me as we go through his utter humiliation, it's Jesus willingly put up with something none of us ever want to. We live to be, to be liked. We want to be known as great. We want to be recognized as people who are important. People even will, they'll even volunteer at the church. And if they don't get the recognition due, they'll be like, see, I don't want to do this anymore. Nobody notices. We want to be noticed. And if we're not, if we're not, we kind of feel crushed. We want people to notice us because we want to be on top. I just, I remember when I was a little kid. I joined a basketball team, and in fifth grade, we'd have a blackboard where the coach would draw a key, a basketball key, and he'd draw little circles that represent the players on the team, and then he'd put their name by them, and I was the point guard, so he drew a little circle, and he spelled my last name, and my last name is Weeks, W-E-E-K-S, but he spelled it like this, W-E-A-K-S. I was in fifth grade, and it still bothers me even today. 
I'm not weak. You know, and I'll, I remember my teammates are going, <laughs> weeks, and they called me weeksy, little weeksy. Oh, that made me so mad. I hate that. I hate being embarrassed, utter humiliated. I told you my, my sister had called me Chrissy. Chrissy Weeks. Ah! Makes you crazy mad because we don't want to be humiliated on the bottom, mocked, and made fun of. Jesus did it willingly. He did four things. Look at the first one, verse 32. As they were going out, so Jesus is being led out through the streets of Jerusalem to be crucified with the cross, but as they were going out, they, meaning the Roman soldiers, met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Why was he forced to carry the cross? Because Jesus needed help. They say he was scourged so bad, beat with rods so bad, he was utterly depleted of power and energy. So they needed to get some unknown guy walking through the streets, and they grabbed him. They say, you look strong. And they put the cross on his shoulders because Jesus couldn't do it. The one who created the world tossed the stars in the sky, who made the mountains, swarmed the mountains. He needed help. That's humiliating. None of us like to admit that we need help. I got it covered. I'm a tough man. I can do it. Jesus needed somebody he created to come out of the crowd to carry his crossbeam that he was going to be executed on. Talk about utter humiliation. The story continues. Verse 33, they came to a, a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. So the mountain where he was crucified in, or the hill, had a look of a skull on it. Actually, my wife and I went, Ken and Rhonda said, you can still kind of see it. If that's the place, you can kind of see the imprint of a skull. And also they called it the place of skull because people would get their bodies picked to bone. Verse 34, there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink. The reason they say he refused to drink it because he didn't want to be numbed from the pain. He wanted to take the full wrath of God. Keep reading. And here's the hard part. Verse 35, when they had crucified him, meaning when they laid him down on a cross beam and nailed his hands, they divided up his clothes and gambled for him. They stripped him naked and they divided up the only thing he owned. He had no home when he died. Jesus had no property, he had no jewels, he had no retirement plan. Jesus had no horses, no cattle, he had nothing. And if it's true that he who dies with the most toys wins, Jesus is the biggest loser. The one thing he owned, they stripped away from him. Grubby-handed men mocking him. And, and what's hard about this is I think you and I, somewhat we get our, our significance from our comparison with others and what they have as compared to us. And often we will compare a couple things. We will compare who has 
seems like they have a better family or they got more friends, but more than likely we compare by what we own. And we seem to compare with somebody we think is above our station. And when we compare with people who are above our station, we kind of get mad at God. Why don't I have a nice car like that? What about a house like, I don't have a cabin on a lake. And we almost are like, man, am I getting a raw deal? Jesus died with nothing. Third thing we find in 38 begins by saying, well, verse 36, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. It's mostly mockery, but he's kind of saying it to all of the Jews that this is your man, the king of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said. He can't even save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Look at verse 44. Verse 44 is kind of heavy. In the same way the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. You want to talk about utter humiliation. Not only do he own nothing, but the lowest, the dregs of society considered him even lower than they. That's utter humiliation. I remember when I was a youth pastor... And this, this one kid lived across the street. I, he'd come to youth group and just cause all kind of problems. Cause all kind of problems. And so I kicked him out of youth group. And him and his buddies got so mad at me, they got in their car and they turfed my lawn, you know. And they just swore, you know, I wanted to wring their neck. Those little grubs, I wanted to get them. Jesus just, he didn't retaliate. He let them mock him. How often do you want to retaliate? And then uh, finally, the one who came to save the world can't even save himself. I read it a couple times. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him. If you're the son of God, verse 40, save yourself. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost, is what he said. He said it to the public. He said it to the disciples, and yet he can't even get off the cross. Some kind of hero he is. Couldn't even save himself. You want to talk about utter humiliation. When Jesus endured the cross, which means he willingly went, it means he willingly went to the bottom and he didn't fight back. He was utterly exhausted, had nothing to give. And if you feel like your life is useless, 
that you just are done, hang in there. Hang in there. Jesus did. Now we go into the part of the crucifixion. I think it had to be the worst. I don't know if I can even understand it. I don't. I can talk about it, but it's the moment where I think Jesus suffered the most. And he suffered complete abandonment by his father. Complete abandonment. So yesterday, my wife and I, this is football season for my son. It's his senior year at Wheaton, and he plays football in Chicago. So we'll go drive up and drive back. And sometimes it's pretty late. But we do it because we want to, um, we want him to know as he's facing giants on the football field, somebody's behind you. We got you. We're there for you. It's what a parent does. I think that's why Jesus prayed all the time. Because here he is facing giants in the world, the demons and the Pharisees and people who didn't believe him. He needed somebody to be on his side. But when it comes to the cross, God abandoned him. He didn't show up. Listen to verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. Even Tacitus said it was really strange. For three hours on this certain day, it's like the sun was blotted out where you couldn't see your hand in front of your eyes if you didn't have a torch. So about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. God didn't rescue him. He was abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a psalm of David from Psalm 22, written about, they'd say about 700 years before Jesus uttered this. David wrote this, and it was the Holy Spirit revealing to David what was psychologically on Jesus' mind as he was dying. One commentator said, Jesus in this moment felt in both soul and body the horror of God's displeasure against sin. Because he who knew no sin became sin for us. Charles Spurgeon says, Jesus not only endured the withdrawal of the Father's fellowship, but also the actual outpouring of the Father's wrath. Because he's a substitute for you and me, so he took on God's full wrath. He understood not just the blackness, but the darkness of what wrath and displeasure of the Almighty God is like, and it went down to the depths of his soul for you. He suffered absolute and total abandonment for you. 
And the question to why have you forsaken me? Why did God forsake him? Because Jesus stood in the place of guilty sinners and God is too pure to look upon iniquity. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Why? Because he loves you. You don't think God loves you? Like seriously, you don't think God loves you? He loves you. In his, in his abandonment, he's screaming alongside you. I get it. I get it. So do you feel alone? Like do you feel like God abandons you? Like some days, in the middle of the night, nobody understands. That no one sees you. Jesus has not just been there. He is there. I want you to look at something amazing. Go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, this is the last book that Paul wrote, Paul the Apostle. Paul was getting ready to die. Paul actually was beheaded for the faith in Rome. Many times he was brought before councils because he had charges of blasphemy and he's causing disorder in the Roman Empire. And so Paul was a lot of times facing major problems with the courts of that day. And so 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, he's writing a letter to the church, specifically to Timothy. And he writes, Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. So a guy who's supposed to support Paul, because, you know what, I'm tired of this Christianity stuff. I love the world. I don't want to follow God anymore. And see you, Paul. I'm out. I'm out. I check out. Look at verse uh, 16. He says, at my first offense, this is talking about his court hearing, at my first offense, no one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. Could you imagine being Paul when he did everything for the churches? He was whipped, shipwrecked, would go from town to town, thousands of miles on foot for the church, and nobody stands with him. And then he says, verse 17, probably the... This is so encouraging, verse 17. But the Lord stood at my side, but Jesus was there. So if we go back to Matthew, there's one more thing about the crucifixion and how it ends. Look at what it says in verse 50. Uh, Matthew 27, 50. It says, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Go to 55. It talks about the finality of what happened. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary and the mother of Zebedee's son. As evening approached, there came a man, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, so Jesus' is dead, stiff body is being wrapped in white cloth, placed his body in a tomb, a rock tomb that was new, just got cut out of the rock. Joseph rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. 
the next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the tomb and posting the guard. So they rolled the stone, they put on a seal, and the seal is a sign from Pilate which says, do not mess with this, do not open it, on pain of death. That's so nobody would touch it. So, you got to realize, you got to realize something. Jesus was only 33. He had his whole life ahead of him. And he died. He died. He was stiff and cold. And so from a human perspective, you can say not only did death win, but with so being so young, with so many dreams, so many visions yet unfulfilled, Jesus was an abject failure. He really was. He was a complete failure. At the moment the stone was sealed and he was wrapped in burial clothes, all of his teachings, all of his miracles, all of his promises, and the eyes of disciples were stuck behind that rock. And they, he was dead. And he went silent. Where is Jesus? He's dead. I thought he was going to rock the world. Not anymore. He's wrapped up in white clothes. September 30th, a couple days ago, is the 16th anniversary of my dad's death. I think about my dad all the time. It doesn't seem right. He was so alive when he was alive. He had laughed like crazy, he had a rich singing voice, and he just would welcome people when they entered the house. I'd walk in, he'd go, hey, oh man, I missed that. Now he's silenced by cold, callous grave, buried in Avon Lake, Ohio, right by the edge of Lake Erie where the wind comes whipping off and it's freezing, and I haven't seen it since. Why go to a grave? I don't want to go to a grave. All of his efforts to accomplish great things and enjoy his grandkids ended the day his heart stopped beating. He was left a lifeless man crumpled on the living room carpet. My best friend's gone, so what's the, what's the use? Why even try? Psalm 49, listen to what it says, For all can see that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves. Their forms will decay in a grave. So don't be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increase, for they're going to take nothing with them when they die. Well, this is a very encouraging psalm, is it not? Like, Great. We're going to be like beasts, just dead dog when I die. Jesus was a beast that perished 
Case closed. He's buried. Let's close the book. We're done. Let's go home. See, see you later. But I, I failed to read something. I skipped over something. If you're a good reader, you realize I skipped over verses 51 to 54. I want you to follow along because sometimes I don't think we catch this. Listen to what the Bible says. It's mind-blowing because I believe this. Here's what it says. Verse 51, it says, at the, so Jesus gave up his spirit. At that moment, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. <laughs> what that means is the temple where the Jews would come and only the high priest could go behind the curtain to offer the sacrifice was ripped apart. What does that even mean? What that means is the closed access, private, only those who are allowed in, it's wide open now. It says it was ripped open. Who ripped it? I don't know. Maybe an invisible angel ripped it. Maybe Gabriel on one side and Michael on the other, and they just were smiling as they went. <coughs> they ripped it. Now keep reading. Gets even better. The earth shook. <coughs> the rock split. <coughs> and then verse 52, the tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people had died and were raised to life. What is it? What? Yeah, so in Jerusalem, there's a big hill, and around the hill are all these tombs. When Jesus died, the idea is that all of a sudden, the tombs split open, and you could see these walking dead guys getting out of the tomb. The great, my great-grandpa, you know, Simeon's out of the tomb knocking on my door. What is he doing? Yeah, he's walking around the streets. What? Yeah, his mouth's a little crooked, but he's alive. That's what it says. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Were they, were they sitting at the cafe? You know, what were they doing? It's the weirdest story. But then verse 54, where the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. And they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. He was the son of God. The moment Jesus breathed his last, so he breathes his last, that is the moment sin lost. The moment his body was broken and dead was the moment the curse on humanity was broken and died. The power of grace from that moment on started leaking into the fabric of reality. I'll give you, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you a story of what I mean by this. So when I was a kid, one of my favorite movies was called, is a war, war movie, is Force 10 from Navarone. It's an old movie in the 70s. Steve, do you remember that movie? It was with Harrison Ford and Carl Weathers and Really, you'd like, you would remember it if you watched it. Here's the storyline, very simple. There's a bridge in Yugoslavia that the Nazis were crossing over to come in, and they were marshalling their troops over this bridge. Huge bridge. And so some allied forces were given a job to parachute in and blow up the bridge. 
So when they went to the bridge, it was indestructible. They knew they couldn't blow it up. They couldn't. But they had one guy, the Allies had one guy on their team named Miller. He was the demolition expert. Really short little British guy. Kind of talked like this, you know, very matter of fact. And he goes, did you notice about a mile upstream, there was a big dam holding back massive amounts of water. All we have to do is blow up the dam. If we blow up the dam, it will let all the water come out and it will topple the bridge. So we don't need to blow up the bridge. All we have to do is blow up the dam. And they're like, Miller, that's brilliant. So they got all these charges of C4, went into the bridge and started putting five of them on the foundation of the dam. Not on the bridge, on the foundation of the dam. So these guys go in there and then they, they light the fuse and they realize, oh man, we're... We don't have enough time to get out of the dam before it blows up, so we're dead. But they light it anyhow because that was their mission. They light the fuses. It blows off the explosives. Five massive shots. And nothing happens. And so all of these, these allies are like, Miller, I thought, I thought it'd blow up. He goes, just follow me and just relax. They go up out of the dam and they sit on a hillside and he just starts lighting a pipe, smoking a pipe. And they're like, Miller, I thought you said it'd blow up the dam. We're not going to be able to stop the Nazis. He goes, just relax and watch. All of a sudden, down the middle of the dam, a crack. And out of that crack started dripping water. And then another crack, but this crack, hunk of cement came out, and out came a jet of water. Then on this side, massive amounts of concrete fell, and all of a sudden the water started cascading, and a tidal wave knocked over the bridge, and they were hooting and hollering. They said, uh-oh, we're still on the Nazi side. What do we do? Anyhow, they <laughs> toppled over the bridge, but it was the moment they lit the fuse, they didn't think anything happened. Just a crack. When Jesus died, I think the world didn't know what happened. But this crack of grace started opening up souls of human beings. You can't really see it right now. But those of you who participated in the communion, you have, you have a crack. Listen to what it says. So Jesus' death, like that C4 charge, might not to the world have done anything. But you know it's changed you forever. And Hebrews says, by the blood of Jesus, by his death, a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. Not only was the curtain ripped, but you and I now have complete access into the throne of the Father that nobody ever had before. And then someday the world is going to see the crack that we know is going to be exposed when his grace comes tumbling down out of heaven and it's going to wipe out what Satan has been trying to stop for all eternity. So this little death where this guy was wrapped in a shroud where the stone was rolled and sealed was the first dynamite charge of salvation for the whole world. And when it happens to you, you know it. Because you will never be the same. Jesus endured. 
He didn't give up. He endured so you can persevere. Don't give up. Jesus experienced complete suffering and total failure so you can have a crack in your heart. You can ex finally experience joy. So don't quit. You know why? Because cracks are showing. 